Luke 15, verse 1, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near Him to listen to Him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And Jesus, before we go any further, I thank You for eating with sinners. I thank You that You chose to spend time with and to be around people like me. I think about how lost, Jesus, I would be if You had not come showing forth the love of God, proving that love over and over in your interactions, in your relationships, and in your death. And so thank You, Lord. And I pray tonight, if nothing else is heard out of all of this, if someone just zones out for the next four hours of teaching, (laughs) I pray that we will not walk out of here, not a one of us, without recognizing how high is the Father's love. How deep and how wide, how long it just continues on. And Father, it's Your love that we want to soak in tonight. May we do that. Thank You, thank You, thank You for eating with sinners. In Jesus' name, Amen. You know, it strikes me right off the bat that as the tax collectors and sinners are just eating up every word, they're gathered around Jesus, they're listening to Him, they are drawn to Him. And yet the scribes and the Pharisees are, you know, arms crossed and and scrutinizing every little thing that he says and, and very opposed to him. Two very different camps of people, and you probably couldn't have called it that way had you been in Judea and Samaria, in the Promised Land, had you been there in the years prior to Christ's arrival. You would have thought those holy people with that temple, when their God comes, if their God comes as they claim He's going to come, boy, it's it's going to be big time. They're all going to be with Him, and that yeah. I'm, I'm, you might have been like I probably would have been one of those saying, "Well, that's for them, but it's not for me. I, I'm not. I'm just not one of them. I'm not clean enough. I'm not together enough. I'm an outsider. So this is just not for me. So Jesus comes along." And the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes and all of the people of ill repute are just... Suddenly their eyes are open. Suddenly there's someone who's saying stuff they can understand. Suddenly there's there's a spiritual man, obviously incredibly holy and godly, but who's relatable, who's funny, who's a great storyteller who's compassionate and gracious, who's touching life. And this is not what anyone expected. In fact, the scribes and the Pharisees misunderstood Jesus because they misunderstood God. For all of the law, they still missed who God was, who God is. Now, I think if you you look at the law through the lens of Jesus, as we have been blessed to do for ten years now, then you see how much love the Father has. You see how how gracious He is. You see how much He wants relationship. But if you look at the law from the standpoint of just the law, with no Jesus and no relationship, but just about keeping rules, it becomes a very heavy thing. And that's how many of the Jews saw it. They were so rooted in a religion of distance that they missed the fact that God wanted nearness. He wanted to be close. Go all the way back to the beginning. What did He do? He created the cosmos and then He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. That was His heart's desire. He did great and mighty things. He brought the flood, but He sailed with Noah. He calls Abraham 
out of polytheism. Not so that he can now have a new religion, but so, so he can be friends. And Abraham is called in the scriptures a friend of God. That's amazing. Isn't it amazing? Abraham's called out of this polytheistic, paganistic world that he's in, in Ur of the Chaldees, called to follow this one true God. And the first thing God does is not set up religion. In fact, for Abraham's entire life, this will freak out some of you long-time churchgoers like myself. Abraham never went to church. (laughs) There was no church. There was just God. A relationship. He called Abram and Sarah. He gave Isaac a bride. That's relationship. He wrestled with Jacob. Doesn't get much closer than that. He loved David. And we're told in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what's happening as chapter 15 begins. We see the people, the commoners, the outsiders, the outcasts, the lowlifes, gravitating to this man because they get it. This guy's here for a relationship. This guy's here because he loves us. I can't keep all that law stuff. I'm not holy like those Pharisees, but but he smiles when I sit and listen. He cares. He healed Aunt Petunia just the other day. It's amazing what he's doing. In the following three parables of Luke chapter 15, one of the most significant chapters of teaching in the entire Bible, three very familiar parables Jesus tells to set the record straight about the Father's heart. So that people will understand truly the nature of God. What God is about. What God wants of us. And he begins in verse 3. He told them this parable saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me! I found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. The parable begins with the shepherd's search. The shepherd's search, verse 4, he goes after the one. Now, I imagine at some point in your life you've heard a story or some variation of the story of the, of the shepherd leaving the 99 and going after the one. It's a pretty common story, especially in Christian circles. But it is astounding because the shepherd is God. And Jesus is proclaiming the nature of God here. And the nature of God is to care about the one. He's not just concerned with the mass around the throne. My minions, if you will. No, it's it's the one. And the rabbis taught that a person could repent and come to the Lord, but Jesus turns around and He taught that the Lord goes after the person. That's completely different. Jesus said in John 6.44, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus said, It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of or by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, Jesus says, comes to me. 
I love that verse because it reminds me, I don't come to God because I wanted to in the first place. I come to Him because He he attracted me. He lured me. He drew me in. What was it about Him that drew you in, Rick? His love. He just drew me in. And Jesus says that's how it works. The, The shepherd goes after that one sheep. It's a very different paradigm than what the Jewish people of the day were thinking. You've got to jump through so many hoops to get to where God is. And Jesus says, no, no, no. God's going after you. No wonder the tax collectors and the sinners and the outcasts were also attracted to Him. Because He's the God who comes to me. He's the God who seeks me out. He's the God who is consistently explained in the very person of Jesus Christ. Who said in Luke 19, verse 10, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The shepherd's search. Second thing you might notice in this parable is the shepherd's shoulders. The shepherd's shoulders. That's not easy to say three times. The shepherd's shoulders. He takes this lamb that he finds and puts it up on his shoulders, this sheep, and carries it back. Now, you may have heard the the extracurricular teaching on what oftentimes a shepherd would do with a wandering lamb. If you heard this, he would break the lamb's leg. And then the lamb wouldn't be able to walk, and he'd break the leg, literally, and bind it up so the lamb couldn't walk, and then he would carry that lamb around on his shoulders for a time until the lamb was so attached to the shepherd it would no longer wander off. And there's some history to that and some truth to that. But you might notice in this particular parable, the legs aren't broken. But the shepherd still picks up the sheep It's not even a lamb, it's a sheep. Big old sheep. (laughs) By the way, you know what a sheep is without legs? (laughs) A cloud. (laughs) Anyway, so he, he, he just gets his sheep, puts it on his shoulders, and brings it back into the fold. Now, why does he do that? Because the sheep would wander off again if he didn't. Because the sheep doesn't know the way back. Because the sheep and lookout in the field is a clueless wonder. Oh, we're going back to the fold? Okay, and off he goes, off in the other direction. You know, right off the cliff. The shepherd has to carry the sheep because the sheep doesn't have a clue. And there are a lot of people like that. That honestly, don't have a clue. In fact, you're going to note three different kinds of people in these three different parables. But one is just those who are wandering because they don't know any better. They've never been taught. They've never really heard about Jesus. Oh, maybe they've driven by a church or, you know, heard the Bible thing. I know those Christians are all uptight and judging everybody or something. I don't know what the deal is, but they're clueless. So they just wander around and the shepherd goes and gets them. Puts them on his shoulders. The shepherd's big, broad shoulders. That's grace. Paul says in Romans 5, 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Not for the holy, not for the righteous, not for the church going pure, for the ungodly at the right time. We were totally helpless. We were lost out on the rocky crags, wandering, confused, not sure where the flock was. And God came and got us. The shepherd's shoulders. And we're saved, found, carried on his shoulders, and this is not of ourselves. But here's the third salvational truth. And and this one was remarkable to me as I thought through this parable. Not only do we see the shepherd going on the search and the shepherd carrying the sheep on his shoulders, but we see the shepherd's smile. The shepherd's smile. 
Now I have chased my dog Reggie down the driveway and I can tell you I was not smiling. I was not happy about having to chase down this foolish animal, this mindless, fuzzy being. When he finds the sheep, verse 5 tells us he is rejoicing. Now I don't want to read too much into the story because it's very simple and a lot is read into these parables. So we want to keep it at face value. But the shepherd has to go on the hunt. He's got to go search this out. This is a little bit out of his daily routine, out of his schedule. He's got to leave the sheep, he's got to leave the plan of the day and go and get this stupid, wandering, fuzzy sheep. I wouldn't be happy about that. And there are a lot of people who think God isn't. And yet, Jesus says no. He searches out, he finds the sheep, he shoulders the sheep, and he smiles about it. He's happy about it. He's not grumbling. Who do you think you are? You, E, W, E. You bad sheep. Why can't you be like the rest of the flock? Like your brothers and sisters, have you ever stopped and thought about the look on Jesus' face when He saved you? The moment that you said, yes, Lord. When you were born again, what did Jesus look like in that moment? About time, Les. (laughs) For crying out loud, how many years have I been waiting And when it's okay, you're safe, but I'm not happy about it. No. The shepherds smile. Now you might say, well, wait, Rick, that's not Jesus on the cross. Wincing in pain, blood and sweat in his eyes, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief, the Bible even tells us. Well, I would quote you another verse, Hebrews 12.2, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. You know what the cross is? The cross is the shepherd going to get the sheep. The cross is the shepherd skinning his legs on the rocky crags, trying to make his way up to where that foolish wandering sheep is. The cross is the shepherd twisting his ankle as he goes. The cross is the blood and the sweat that he pours out, getting to the sheep. But the moment he gets to the sheep, you know what the sheep on the shoulders is? It's the resurrection. Jesus in His resurrection, laying us on His shoulders as saved, as found. And it brings a smile to the shepherd's face. And I'm not making that part up because He says it right there. He lays it on His shoulders rejoicing. He comes home, He calls together His friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me! It's party time! I found the lost, wandering, and I would add stupid sheep! And He's happy about it. And I, I, I hope we understand this. For all the pain and the sorrow of the crucifixion, Jesus does not begrudge you your salvation. He doesn't look at you and say, I hope you appreciate what I went through for you. No, He doesn't. He says, welcome home. Enter in the joy of your Father. He smiles. It's a good thing. The shepherd's search, he found me. On his shoulders, he carried me. And now, and Christians, this really ought to be our attitude toward Jesus, our understanding. Now, the shepherd's smile is what we see. Not grumpiness. We don't serve a grumpy Savior. We serve a risen, 
smiling, rejoicing Lord. Verse 10, or verse 8. Next parable. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way. I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And you look around at the sinners and the tax collectors. How do you think they're reacting to this? What do you think they're hearing? I have never... Cha-ching! I have never... I have never heard this before. What great value he places in the one lost coin... By the way, you know, a coin in and of itself, if it's, if it's in a dusty corner in the side of the room or under a dresser or a bureau, it's not worth anything. It has no value. It doesn't have any value until it's found. Until it can then be redeemed for merchandise or to purchase something. And Jesus redeemed us in that way. It's remarkable what He's saying here. And again, you've got to understand these are people who had not heard this. And it's blowing their minds. So another search takes place. A sheep is found. Now a coin is found. But add this to the story. Not only the search and the shoulders and the smile, but the shared celebration. There is a shared celebration here. Who's rejoicing with the shepherd in the first parable? No. <laughs> and when I do that, I know, what I'm, I know what's going to happen. Next week when I ask a question, no one's going to say a thing. It's not the angels. I always thought it was. And for whoever said angels, that's, that's what I always assume. Well, the angels are rejoicing. That's not what he says. He calls together his friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me. And then he says, Note this, I tell you that the same way, verse 7, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Okay, so there are angels in heaven, so we assume angels, right? Look down at the last verse of the second parable, verse 10. In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It doesn't say there's joy among the angels. It doesn't say the angels are rejoicing. It says there is joy in the presence of the angels. What are you talking about, Rick? The friends and the neighbors, gang, who in heaven is in the presence of the angels rejoicing when someone gets saved? The saints. The lost sinners saved. Saved people. What the Bible refers to, well, I'll read it to you, Hebrews 11.39, all of these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised because God provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I submit to you that the rejoicing of the friends and the neighbors in heaven are the saints who have gone before us. I think the angels are probably getting into it too. But remember, the Bible tells us the angels are not fully understanding grace. They're trying to wrap their brains around grace. But those who have been saved by grace know exactly what it means. Friends, loved ones of ours who have gone on before, who have been saved by grace, who are in heaven, their spirits in heaven, at least right now, and we'll get into that more on Sunday, but they are in the presence of the Lord. They know what it means to be saved by grace. And when they see someone saved, someone give their life to Jesus, hallelujah, 
Now she's got what I've got. Now he's going to have what I have. And they know how to rejoice. Because they know the value of being saved. So they celebrate with the smiling shepherd. Now the next parable, the third one, is perhaps the most beloved story Jesus ever told. The prodigal son. It's also one of the most dramatized and amplified and added to and expanded upon. And there are all kinds of things, even as I read through this story, there are all kinds of things in it that we have added into our Christian psyche, kind of the Christian lore of Jesus' parables, that are not here. So let's try and be as simple as possible and see what Jesus is saying. Verse 11. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Now stop right there. Note number one, the fairness of the father. I had never seen this before. Both sons got their inheritance that day. It wasn't just the one son who intended to leave and squander it. Both sons got it. He said, all right, if you want your inheritance, I'll go ahead and divide it up. The older son and the younger son, they both got it that very day. And they both got it showing an aspect of the character of God, impartiality. He is absolutely impartial. Romans 2.11, there is no partiality with God. And that means the inheritance that's doled out to his children is doled out in absolute fairness and equity. That everyone gets exactly what the Lord has determined for them. It's completely fair. It is completely just. And this idea of the inheritance, before we go any further, it was a concept deeply rooted, not only in Hebrew culture, but in Hebrew faith. The inheritance... The inheritance is referred to 291 times in the Scriptures. In the life of Israel, the inheritance was their insurance or assurance of a future hope. Which is why, if you know the old story of Zelophehad's daughters, the daughters who had no brothers, their father had died in the wilderness, there was no one to receive the inheritance for them, they had no future, they had no hope. Zelophehad's daughters came to Moses and said, we don't have a future or a hope. And so Moses says, well, let me take this to the Lord. And the Lord says, give them the inheritance. Be sure that they are taken care of. Because to the Jewish person, the inheritance was everything. The inheritance was their future. And so it is with us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Okay, a living hope. One that does not die. One that does not go away. One that is not deferred. But a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance imperishable and undefiled which will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. Your inheritance is your future. And in Christ Jesus, you have an inheritance. And it is reserved for you. It's held for you. It's yours. It belongs to you. So, both sons got their inheritance that day. The prodigal and the loyal son both get their portion divided fairly between them. Verse 13. And not many days later, the younger son gathered together everything and went on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. 
So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. Second thing to note, the fallenness of the son. How far he has fallen from his father's house. In his father's house where he was completely cared for, where he had everything given to him, and even his inheritance was handed to him on the spot when he requested it, and now he has fallen all the way down to... what well, my, mom, my mom used to call my room a pigsty. But it was never this bad. This guy is now in a pigsty. He is now caring for swine. He is caring for pigs. And again, cultural gang, this is an absolutely shocking outcome for a Jewish audience. The pigs? Are you serious? Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He took this guy to the worst place possible for a Jew. Caring for pigs. Wallowing in the muck and the mire with the swine. This sinful boy, if you're listening with a, with a Jewish mindset, this sinful boy is at the point of no return. Oh, he's lost. Leviticus 11 verse 7 defines the pig as unclean. And by Jesus' day, the oral law had, had 1,500 years to improve upon God's law. And I use that phrase, improve upon, sarcastically. 613 written laws within Torah, within, within the Scriptures. And the Jews had thousands upon thousands. And I've shared with you today that the, just the Sabbath laws in Israel are astounding. Even today in modern day Israel, to not be able to push a button to go down an elevator because that's work. <laughs> anyway, this sinful boy is at a bad spot and feeding pigs spoke of more than just uncleanness. It is a picture of absolute and total degeneracy. This guy's too far gone. He's lost. Again, think with the mindset not only of a Jew, but of a Jew who's way on the outside, of someone who's impoverished, of someone who's sinned so bad, your life is a pigsty. You're no different than this guy. And now you're waiting to hear what's going to happen. See, Jesus has him right where he wants him. Verse 17. But he came to his senses. Literally, he came to himself. And said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? And I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he has come, as fallen as he is, he has come to the fullness of his rebellion. That's number three, the fullness of rebellion. He had come to, as we often say, the end of himself. He had nowhere to go, nothing left to try. He was at the it was this or die, go home or die. That's all that's left. And rebellion often has to come full circle. Rebellion often has to bring a person absolutely to the point of sorrow. And the Bible describes two kinds of sorrow that we can land in when we come to ourselves, when we realize what our foolishness, what our rebellion, what our stupidity has, has brought us in our lives, we get to that spot. And Paul writes of two sorrows that can come of it. Second Corinthians 7, verse 10. The sorrow that is according to the will of God. 
And that produces repentance without regret. A sorrow that just says, I am no good here. I need you, Lord. I, I repent. i got to come home. And there's also the sorrow of the world that produces death. What's the sorrow of the world? Self-pity? Uh, personal martyrdom? You know, oh, the world's against me. No, oh, I just, I've tried everything and no one cares. I'm just stuck here in this pigsty of a life. And that's the sorrow of the world and that'll kill you. And that will not get you out of the muck and the mire. But the sorrow that produces repentance, it leads, Paul says, to salvation. Either way, rebellion runs a very hard course. And again, many of Jesus' listeners had been down that road. Many of Jesus' listeners knew that very sorrow. Think about the two groups. you got the scribes and the Pharisees. And they're listening. And I can almost imagine a, a grin on their faces at the deserved outcome of this loser, of this squanderer of the inheritance. I wonder if there were some scribes and Pharisees right then saying, Jesus is finally coming around telling it like it is. This is good. Wow, maybe he's wising up. And the sinners and the reprobates who personally relate to the prodigal are hanging on the edge of his word wondering, is there any hope for us? Verse 20, So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate, number four, the fervor of the father. He is so excited that he is not, listen, he is not even paying attention to his son's repentance. He's already way beyond repentance. He's like, son, you had me at father. (laughs) When you said father, that was all I wanted to hear. When you came around the edge of the road, that's all I wanted to see. Because he knew his son's heart. Right? As the father knows our hearts. All we have to do is turn. We have the script written out, the speech ready to go, the abject humility thought through, and we're ready to do it, and God says, no need, because you're back. Hallelujah, and let's rejoice. Don't miss this. The son is treated by his father like a bride. Like a bride. He's embraced, he's kissed, he's robed, he's shooed. My daughter Hannah, who's a soon-to-be bride, just got her her wedding shoes. She was so excited walking around the house in her little, you know, wedding shoes. I'm like, whatever, they're shoes, you know. And Cheryl and Hannah are like, oh, they're just so beautiful. I'm like, they're shoes. What? And giving him a ring and killing the fatted calf for a big feast. This is like a wedding. I don't know if any of the Jews would have thought of that. I know a father giving a son a wedding celebration. I know it's kind of weird, but, but I see this, that this. Isaiah 62, verse 5. As a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. 
Revelation 19, verse 9, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. And so we see in the character of God here, this fervor, this passion, this this overwhelming love for the sinner who turns around. For the prodigal who realizes his need and in sorrow turns around and comes home and Father is just so excited. Verse 25, Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. He said to him, Your brother has come and your father's killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry, was not willing to go in. And his father, note this, compassionate dad, his father came out. Dad loves both sons just as much. Just because the one son has stayed at home and been faithful all these years doesn't mean dad doesn't love him with just as much passion and fervor as the son who has just been found. Both sons matter to the father. And so the father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours and yet you've never given me a young goat so that I may celebrate with my friends. Um, I refer you back to the beginning of the story where the father gave him his inheritance. (laughs) But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. By the way, how does he know he devoured the wealth with prostitutes? How does, where do you get that info? I don't know. And he said to him, here's the father's son. You have always been with me. All that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. And that literally is what the Greek implies there. He's begun to live again. He's been raised to walk in a newness of life. He was lost and has been found. And so, number five in the story, the frustration of the firstborn. One commentary writer said the following, the proud and the self-righteous always feel that they are not treated as well as they deserve. I have been keeping your commandments. I've been doing my part. I've been towing the line here. Well, he was off partying, and now he gets a party. And what do I... I'm not... Listen, never forget that none of us get what we truly deserve. But we do get grace. We get grace that is so undeserved. Nothing is more undeserved than the grace of God for people who will just receive it. Just accept it. But again, much has been done with this part of the parable. And Jesus is now turning His attention in the audience from the sinners and the tax collectors and those who are just hanging on His every word and now have a joyful expression on their face. He's turning His attention to the Pharisees who are not so joyful at this point of the story. Because the older brother is Israel. He's the firstborn. He's the one who has had all the commands. He's the one who was there towing the line. He was the one who was there keeping the law. He's been loyal to the Father, so-called. Obviously not so much in his heart. In Israel, the leadership there, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they are not likened a Messiah type who attracts this kind of crowd. Romans 11, verse 11. The beauty of God's plan is really standing here. 
Paul says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? See God's marvelous plan? He calls Israel. He loves Israel. He raises Israel as His firstborn. And then He pulls the Gentiles in, these losers, these reprobates, these these prodigals, and we come flooding in, and Israel goes, what? No. Not about to go with this. You know, jealousy. And God uses that jealousy to bring it right back around to save Israel. And He saves them all. It's an amazing thing. Israel still has... It's full inheritance kept in reserve. So do we. Our inheritance is just awaiting. And so, brothers and sisters, and I don't see this among Christians much, but never play the jealous sibling when people are received home. When people are born again. Never be the jealous sibling who sits there going, well, I've been a Christian for 25 years and that guy was saved just last year and he's already serving on this group and ministering over here and what right does he think he has? Same right as you, same grace. Don't be the jealous sibling. Share in the celebration. Now, Jesus' parables in Luke 15. When you take all three of them together, they describe, as I mentioned before, three different types of lostness. Three different types. Note this, the sheep strayed. The coin was mislaid and the son betrayed. The sheep strayed like those who don't even know they're sinning. Who don't even recognize they're lost. Just good people out there living life. What? Never really heard that there's a Jesus or that I'm a good guy. What's the problem? Don't understand. They're still lost. Even if they've just strayed, they're still lost. They still need the gospel. Because the gospel informs people that they are lost and then saves them. So the sheep who strayed. The coin was mislaid. This is interesting. The coin didn't choose to be lost. The coin didn't wander off. Didn't one day go, I wonder what it's like on the other side of the you know cupboard. <laughs> no. The coin was mislaid. She dropped it. She put it somewhere. It was the woman's fault. Now I'm not saying that the mislaid person is God's fault. So let's not take it out that far. What I am saying is lostness in this case was on account of another. Does that happen? A child perhaps raised in a family never taught about Jesus? Mislaid. Or going all the way back to the beginning, to the sin of Adam, which cracked the door open to sin and death in the first place. So some people are just mislaid in their sin. not rec- They're still lost. They still need finding. But perhaps through no direct or immediate fault of their own, they just never heard. And so they need saving. They still need the gospel of grace. The sheep strayed. The coin mislaid. The son, now this is different, the son betrayed. The son is the one story of the three who chose to leave. Who chose rebellion. Who said, I'm out of here. I'm going to live my way, my lifestyle. I'm going to do my thing, and I don't care what you say, Dad. That's a different thing altogether. Rebellion, plain and simple, which is why the parable of the prodigal son is the only one of the three that does not involve a search. Father does not go looking for the son. 
The woman goes looking for the coin. The, the shepherd looks for the sheep. Father doesn't look for the son. Whoa, 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 Rick, no. I mean, every day he's out there waiting at the gate, right? Well, yeah, that's popular Christian lore. That's not what Jesus says in the story. All he says in the story is while he was a long way off, the father saw him. Now, what was the father doing? I don't know, working in the barn? Maybe he was working on the roof and saw his... Oh, there he is, you know. But this idea that the father was hanging on the edge of the gate just, just waiting for the son to come around the corner, we read that into the story. We don't know. Point is, the father never went after the son. Did not go searching for him. Why? Why doesn't he go? Because in this case, we're not talking about a dumb sheep or an inanimate coin. We're talking about a beating human heart and there is a will involved. The son had a will. And the father wisely knew the son's got to make a choice. The son is going to have to come to the end of himself. The son is going to have to feel the full weight of his rebellion to choose to be with the father. And that is a different kind of sinner. And that is, I would submit to you, the vast majority of sinners in the world, that was me. The son in rebellion. The vast majority of people, and we even see it in the three parables. Think about this. Only one out of a hundred sheep was lost. One percent of the flock. Only one of ten coins was lost. Ten percent of the purse. But one of two sons was lost. Fifty percent of the family. And so we see more rebellion in the world. And we see more of that kind of lostness. And you say, why isn't the Father out searching? Because the Father knows we have to come to the end of ourselves and decide we want to be home. And once we've made that decision, it's party time.